It's halftime in America. Those are the starting words of a recent piece by Bill Roden for The Undefeated. And in this halftime, many athletes are making decisions to opt out from their 2020 season, not just to avoid COVID-19, but to tackle racism and social justice. Joining me to discuss what this timeout could mean is Renee Montgomery, 11-year WNBA point guard for the Atlanta Dream, and Victoria Jackson, former NCAA champ, retired professional track and field athlete, sports historian, and clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University. From the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU, I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and this is The Huddle. In 2016, WNBA star Renee Montgomery was playing for the Minnesota Lynx when she and her teammates decided to take a stand. They wore black warm-up shirts to call attention to the recent deaths of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, as well as the deaths of five police officers in Dallas. Just four years later, she's taking another stand by opting out of the 2020 season. She's putting all of her efforts towards fighting racial equality in Atlanta, with her organization, the Renee Montgomery Foundation. A growing number of WNBA players are making similar announcements as they see their role and platform as opportunities to enact change. After much thought, I've decided to opt out of the 2020 WNBA season. There's work to be done off the court in so many areas in our community. Social justice reform isn't going to happen overnight, but I do feel that now is the time and moments equal momentum. Let's keep this thing going. So Renee, When you wrote that tweet, what was going on in your mind? You know, honestly, I just wanted to tell people why I was opting out. And the reason I felt that I needed to tell people why is because people begin to understand more and be empathetic when they understand your why. So for me, I wasn't opting out of the WNBA season because I'm mad at the WNBA. I wasn't opting out because, you know, for any bad reasons other than my heart was somewhere else. And I thought, I felt that if I told people why I'm, I'm not playing, that they would support me and, and be behind me. So obviously you feel compelled to leave the league. What are you hoping to accomplish in your off season? Yeah. So I'm going to try to go into the educational space in a sense that I, I think that the more people are educated and the more the people understand, they'll get it. You know, a lot of times a lot of a lot of people have it. When I was going to have my Juneteenth block party, people were asking me, "Well, what is Juneteenth?" So I, I realized I had to call my event, "What is Juneteenth?" because it's an educational process. Um, I, people don't know about the Tulsa massacre. People don't know about a lot of different things that happen in Black history because it's not taught in American history. So I think one of the first places to start is the history books. I don't know when's the last time they've been revised or 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 fixed, but the history books need to tell American history in chronological order. And don't just exclude Black History Month for for February. The second place I think that is a good place to start is HBCUs in the education system. We all know that funding is big in schools, funding for the arts, funding for creativity. Um, and, and that's where somewhere I want to go when it, in terms of HBCUs creating different avenues for students to have those platforms, to have have a STEM programs. As you know, it's not heavily in, in, in HBCUs. So to develop those type of systems. As Lou Williams and others have said, they believe that a return to sports right now would be a distraction from the cause. Do you agree? I understand their point. Right now, all eyes are on. We wouldn't even have had this moment if there were other 
things going on. The reason that George Floyd's murder and and this movement has had so much life and, and gotten so much fuel is because we have nothing else to look at. We we are forced to look at what just happened and sit in it and think about it. And and it created a lot of emotions in a lot of athletes, a lot of well, everyone, but athletes in turn. Now they're saying that it's going to cause a distraction. The answer to that is yes. We are going to be watching sports. We're going to be talking about sports. But the good news is the people that are going to be playing the sports are going to be doing things that are going to create more change to bring more awareness. So yes, people are going to watch sports. So some of the conversation is going to go towards the sports things. But these these athletes that are going into these different bubbles, they're prepared to use that platform. And And speaking of, you wrote an article for the Players' Tribune in which you write that your mom also lived during the Detroit riots in the summer of 67. And her saying to you, if you can't make your voice heard, you're going to make it felt. To be seeing the protests right now that are going on and what your mom went through 50 years ago, what do you want people to feel from you? I want people to feel that I'm the same as them. I want them to feel that I'm connected with them. I want them to feel that although I played in the WNBA and people look at it that I have a certain level of privilege, I want them to feel that I'm going to give that up right now because I want us all to be on the same page. I want to build this community here in Atlanta and also nationwide. So I want people to to feel that I hear them. The little brown boys, little brown girls, I hear them, I feel them, and that we're going to try to do something about it. So in 2016, uh, while you were on the links, you and other players wore black warm-up shirts that said, change starts with us, justice and accountability. Can you go back to that moment? You know, what was going on in your mind and, and what was going on in the minds of, of your teammates? Yeah. So in 2016, we were just as outraged as people are now. We felt that it needs some attention. Something needs to be done. This is not okay. So we thought a good way to do was to use our platform. Uh, again, what these athletes are going to do in the bubble. But we we wore these shirts and we were so conscious of the fact that we didn't want people to misconstrue what we were trying to say. We put a police shield on our, our shirts as well. So yes, we had the Black Lives Matter, but we also had a police shield on our shirt to let people understand and know that this is not a us versus the cops thing. Well, it didn't go well at all, as you may know. The cop, the Minnesota Police Department ended up walking out on us. They said they will not be security for our games anymore. A lot of the fans were hurt, confused, because they thought that we were taking a stand against America. That, that they said, you know, we have family in the military, girls. We just can't support you guys going against America. We were never going against America, though. That's the thing. We were trying to make sure that people understood that Black lives need to matter in America. But because racism is so ingrained in American history, people thought we were protesting America. And that was never the case. So it's now four years later. And, you know, after the murders of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, do you see that we're in a different moment? Do you see that there is a, a different response? And is this moment different? Definitely. I mean, you see businesses. We saw almost every sports league organizations saying Black Lives Matter, just saying the term, acknowledging that there's a problem. When we did it four years ago, when we said Black Lives Matter, people were outraged because they couldn't understand what we were doing. So fast forward now to where that's a common phrase. There's not many people that haven't heard that phrase. There's not many people that now don't understand what that phrase actually means. So that's progress in the four years. And then if you look out at the protests, it's not just Black people fighting for Black Lives Mattering. It's it's different cultures. There was protest done in every single state in the United States and then worldwide. So this isn't just a Black problem anymore. This is a universal problem. So we saw a couple of weeks ago, Laura Ingram 
and I think she she said this to LeBron James, you know, to I think quote like shut up and dribble. Um, yeah. When you hear stuff like that in this moment in this day and age where where athletes are going to their platforms and they're speaking up and business people are speaking up, what's your response to that? This is going to sound crazy, so bear with me, but I was really happy she said that. I was happy she said it to LeBron because she said what a lot of people think. A lot of fans don't like when their favorite athlete starts to talk about social things. A lot of fans don't like when their favorite athlete even thinks about getting into the political space. People don't like that. So she said what a lot of people feel. I'm glad she said it to someone like LeBron because it started a whole wave. LeBron, you know, he has something to say back. And since then, he's created platforms based off of that exact concept. More than an athlete, we know with Uninterrupted. Now he's created More Than a Vote, a campaign that I've just joined in on because they reached out to me. He's His response to that was, I'm going to show you what athletes can do, what athletes can say. And, is, and, and if athletes are going to be these role models that everybody talks about, why wouldn't we speak on social causes? So we are in 2020 and we are in an election year. And you mentioned just that you're joining LeBron's uh, voting cause. Uh, what are you hoping to accomplish with that? And, and if you wanted to get if you want to get into the politics, you know, what are the politics? Yeah. And so when we get into the politics, I'm hoping to get people educated. It's not about who you're going to vote for. It's, it's, it's the why. Know, like, know what you want. Now we're seeing how politics can directly affect your everyday life. We're seeing that here in Georgia when Governor Kemp opened up Georgia and, and people weren't ready. We're seeing it now with, with different mayors. I've never known the names of so many different mayors until now. So I think a lot of people now are seeing how big politics are. So now it's our responsibility. Now that we know how important it is, we no longer have that excuse that my vote doesn't count or politics really don't affect me. We see it. So that whole educational process of letting people know you have to vote, your vote counts, and now you see why. And also making sure when people do go vote that we don't have situations like we had here in Georgia where people are waiting five plus hours. Some people waited up to nine hours. People were turned away because they didn't know that they had the proper the proper things they needed to vote. That's that's the things that we need to focus on. So, Renee, we're, we're seeing symbols of racism being torn down. We're seeing that police departments are beginning to ban chokeholds. I mean, there's even the talk of reallocating police funds to more community services. So what is your call to action for others? And what is your call to action for sports leagues? My call to action to others will be representation. And I mean, on all platforms and even in the sports world, you saw the NFL creating the Rooney rule. And if people don't know what that is, the Rooney rule was a rule created so for the NFL owners by the NFL owners so that they would have to try to have more minority people in positions of power, i.e. coaches in the front office. That's not the best way to go about it, but I like that they're trying to do it because representation matters. You have an NFL league who is, is more than the majority is a minority. So I think representation matters not only in sports, in the front offices, in the, in the positions of coaching, but, front, but representation also matters in businesses. You can't have a business that has that you're in a community and, and the representation of your management looks nothing like the community or looks nothing like the people that buy your product, support your product, support your company. You need to have some type of representation. And then when you do, don't make it generic. Make it somebody that's qualified because there's plenty of minorities that are qualified. Give them the platform and give them an environment that helps them succeed. You said in the Players' Tribune that you you navigated white spaces as the only one, the the only black person. 
Um, what do you say to other black girls and black women who, who have that same feeling, who have to navigate the world by themselves and sometimes they are the only person in the room? Yeah, I would say to them that when you're young, all you want to do is fit in like, and you feel weird because you're different. But the older you get, you'll realize that's your superpower. When, when you're different, when you have a thing that makes you different, that makes you unique, that's what people will seek out because they won't want somebody that's just like everyone else. So right now it may seem a little weird or it may be uncomfortable, but embrace it because it's going to be, it's going to be your magic. So Renee, as we record this today, uh, it's the deadline for WNBA players to opt out of the 2020 season. Are you hoping that more players will opt out? And if they do opt out, do you hope that they will uh, join a, a social cause? No, I don't. I don't care if people opt out or not. Honestly, that's not. It's not about who opts out and who opts in because people will see in the future that I'm going to be doing a lot of things with people inside the bubble. So it's not. It's not a. Are you in or are you out? It's are you down? Are, like and like I, LeBron James had one of the best quotes. If you're not with us, we're not with you. So that doesn't mean if you're not in the bubble or if you're out of the bubble. It's just this movement is happening with or without the people that want to get on board. If you're on board with the movement, great. We're all one team at that point. If you're not on board, then that like I'm not going to waste my time with it. I'm not going to even worry about it because this movement is happening. You've been playing basketball, I would assume, all your life. Uh, you've had a, an 11-year career uh, in the WNBA. Um, is it possible that... Renee Montgomery does not return that she just does this work for the rest of her life. Yeah, I don't I don't see that. I mean, right now I'm thinking of, I, that's why I made sure to say out of this season. Um I was actually with the Dream for 3 years in the WNBA for 11 years, but I don't see that right now like the, the, that's why I had to opt out early, you know, like for instance, today's the deadline as you mentioned. I opted out almost a week ago because I already knew what I wanted to do. I already knew about where I was going. And the question that everyone was asking was, are you excited for this WNBA season? And that was an uncomfortable question for me because I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about it. So to answer your question, I wasn't even thinking about this season. So I'm definitely not thinking about next season and the season after that. I really want all the attention and focus just to be on the moment at, at, that we have right now. Renee Montgomery, thank you so much for being on the huddle. Thank you for having me. That was Renee Montgomery. 11-year WNBA veteran point guard who is opting out of her 2020 season to take on social justice full-time. To learn more about Renee's foundation, we put a link in our episode notes. Victoria Jackson is a former NCAA champ, retired professional track and field athlete, sports historian, and clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University. She writes and speaks about the intersection of sport and society, exploring how the games we play and watch tell us much about the communities in which we live. In a recent op-ed for the Boston Globe, Victoria argues that colleges should cancel their upcoming football season to concentrate on fixing the broken sports model that takes advantage of black men and much of their talents. Victoria, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. You just wrote for an op-ed in the Boston Globe where you point out that there is a myth that college sports, namely football, represents the American dream. But that quote, the reality is that college sports are part of the American tragedy being protested in our streets, end quote. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that if we're calling out systemic 
racism and having this moment of reckoning in our country, um, you know, because of Black Lives Matter and the police killings and, I mean, civilian killings of unarmed Black people um, in the last few months, um, you know, it's, it's, it's inspiring to see the conversations that are taking place. Um, and, you know, academics are very much engaged in those conversations. But oftentimes, you know, even those who study things like civil rights and human rights or the long black freedom movement often neglect the role that college sports at predominantly white institutions play as one of these very institutions perpetuating systemic racism and um, racial inequality and injustice. So the title of your uh, op-ed, your opinion piece for the Boston Globe is cancel the fall college football season. Um, that's pretty intense. I mean, there's so many people talking about wanting to get back to normal and, and in particular, you know, football, college football, the NFL. Um, why such a strong opinion? A couple of reasons. First, I fear that the rush back to have a fall football season, first of all, will put vulnerable athletes in harm's way who don't have, you know, they're not unionized because they are, quote, student athletes. And I'm putting that in quotes because it's a term so that schools do not classify athletes as employees. And so National Labor Relations Boards don't see athletes in, as employees. So they, they don't have a voice in this process of determining, you know, what the fall season will look like if it happens at all. So there's that. Um, but also, you know, we had this growing athletes rights movement and growing um, antitrust challenge to the system of big time college sports that was kind of reaching a breaking point. And I fear that, you know, a rush back will eliminate an opportunity for those movements to, to actually, you know, result in change. And also, since these are institutions of higher education, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm calling out academics. I'm also calling out university leaders and, and really want to take this moment, you know, use the pandemic as cover to take a year off and think, you know, soberly, carefully, long and hard about if universities want to continue to field college football teams as part of the academic experience on their campuses, if there's still going to be a student activity. Um, so for those reasons, I think, I mean, there's a plethora of reasons we, we need to take advantage of this moment. Otherwise, a rush back will just mean business as usual. You cite in your article an example of, of a disparity with Louisiana State University, who are the reigning national champions, stating that black men make up 4.6% of the undergraduate population, yet 77.6% of football and basketball teams are black, um, and that only a third of these black athletes are graduating. Is this common on a lot of campuses across the nation where you have these disparities and then the rate of graduation is not that high? Yes. Um, LSU is a bit more extreme than what we see across the Power Five schools. Um, and these numbers come from Dr. Sean Harper, who's at the University of Southern California and directs the Race and Equity Center there. Um, across the board, we see um, 
black men underrepresented compared to their representation in the broader state population. So if we're thinking about state universities, right, you try to have demographics that are reflective of the population of the state. So that's not happening. But then in, and in comparison to that, a dramatic overrepresentation um, of black men on football and basketball rosters. Um, and so, yeah, 4.6 of the undergraduate population at LSU, um, black men make up 16% of the state population. And then, yeah, you know, across the board, it's, it's between 50 and 70% um, of rosters are made up by black men, but then there are also across the board graduating at lower percentages than other athletes. So they're white non-revenue athlete peers or, or majority white non-revenue athlete peers. And then a, a, a large graduation gap in comparison to the overall student body. Would we be having this conversation right now if we didn't have this kind of, you know, awakening in America after the, the death of George Floyd and, and sadly many others that have, have, have come as well too? Um, did it take that incident and that moment for us to now having be having this conversation? In the space of college sports, I would say no. Um, the, the one thing that's different in this moment is that black athletes who play college sports, those black students who are in the intercollegiate athletic system are organizing, they're speaking out, and they're calling out racism at their universities and also in some cases within intercollegiate athletics as well. Um, so Chrissy Carr, a uh, Kansas State basketball player, organized black athletes at Kansas State. Anna Cockrell, um, a track and field athlete um, at the University of Southern California, organized black athletes on her campus. And um, Amira Rose Davis just interviewed both of them on the Burn It All Down podcast and really gave them space to, to, to explain what they were thinking and how they organized and how they shared a message across their campuses and within their college athletics communities. Um, so that's what's different. But but this has been a long growing problem. Both the the problem of big time college sports taking place within higher education, and also the um, exploitation of black athletes within the system, um, particularly at predominantly white institutions. So, you know, we've seen a dramatic increase in the money generated across the Power Five and within NCAA sports um, in less than uh, the last 20 years. So in, in less than the last two decades, the amount of money has grown from $4 billion a year to $14 billion a year. But the um, amount that athletes get in compensation has remained artificially capped at scholarships. So the money being spent has grown dramatically. It's why we see um, coaches' salaries escalating. It's why we see uh, facilities arms race and all these kind of absurd things in, in some places being built like lazy rivers or air, airplane sleep pot, pods and locker rooms. Um, and, you know, it, it's Black athletes at predominantly white institutions entertaining w predominantly white student bodies and predominantly white fan bases. And so this goes back to Dr. Harry Edwards, who was the most vocal um, national leader calling this what it was, um, a plantation um, in the 1960s. Uh, in the 
more recent past Taylor Branch's article in the Atlantic in 2011 really spurred another kind of growing athletes' rights movement, but but focused specifically on um, seeing this system as like a plantation or um, other scholars, myself included, see it like Jim Crow. Um, maybe not slavery, but but the structures of a Jim Crow relationship um, taking place in intercollegiate athletics. Has it always been like this? I mean, was there ever a time when college sports were more aligned to their academic mission and and promise? Well, college sports have been commercialized from the beginning. Um, the very first intercollegiate competition took place in um, the, the 19th century, and it was a rowing competition um, between two Ivy League schools on Lake Winnipesaukee to advertise a railroad line and a resort. Um, so, And it was a moneymaker for all of the interested parties involved. Um, so th- there's always been the money pressure. Um, we've, we see a professionalization of the people working in intercollegiate athletics really accelerating, um, in a post world war II moment, um, building, you know, as the economy rises in the United States, as air travel becomes easier, as we have TV market, and, you know, now televised football games. So the, the, the money and the tensions within the structure begin to increase um, in the 50s and the 60s. And this also happens to be the moment when we see the number of black athletes playing at predominantly white institutions increasing. And we start to see um, problems because of that. Um, you have a space that's all white and all male that's becoming increasingly black um, with the athletes playing the revenue-generating sports by the 1970s. And it's also in this moment that (laughs) the Department of Education and Congress tell schools they have to also provide sporting opportunities for women. So it's like the sky is falling, particularly in intercollegiate athletics (laughs) programs in the South. Um, It's a whole new world. And we see a series of rules changes at the national level as these tensions um, between often black football players and basketball players and their coaches who want more control over their athletes. Um, and a lot of those things are racialized when it comes to haircuts or facial hair or the way black athletes present themselves assertively and confidently, coaches take that as an insult because they're all white coaches in this moment. So in the late 1960s, we see um, at the University of Wyoming, um, black athletes want to protest BYU because the Mormon church still prevented black men from advancing beyond a certain point in the priesthood. And... um, All of the black athletes on the Wyoming team kicked off by the coach, um, John Eaton, um, just for asking if they could wear black armbands. So we see these tensions. Um, Another football player at Oregon State is kicked off his team for for having facial hair. And um, so the rules changes that take place at the national level give all the power to the coaches and take all the power away from athletes. And it really culminates in the move from four-year scholarships to one-year renewable grants and aid in 1973. 
because that looks like an employment contract. And if you don't please your coach, your coach can take your scholarship away. So not only are you no longer on the team, you also don't have a way to pay for college. And a lot of athletes simply drop out because they don't have a means to pay for college on their own. Um, so the, the racial tensions taking place within white intercollegiate athletics departments absolutely are connected to these rule changes, placing more power with coaches and administrators. Are there any universities that would get a good grade when it comes to solving this problem? Um, thanks to the athletes. So uh, over the last 20 years, as the money has been increasing, as the spending has become more ridiculous, we've also, in tandem with that, seen a growing athletes' rights movement. Um, Ramogi Huma, the former UCLA basketball player who's the head of the National College Players Association, is such an important person in this history and the work that he's been doing um, helping athletes current college athletes as they try to navigate these things. Um, so Keen Coulter at Northwestern um, in 2015 sought to unionize the football team after he had taken a class on labor. Um, you know, th this is so great. He's doing exactly what we, we tell college students they should be doing with what they learn in the classroom. Take what you learn in the classroom and apply it to problem solving in real life. And so he um, has a platform with, you know, these bullet points on his platform. And they, although, you know, Northwestern was unable to unionize eventually because the National Labor Relations Board said they couldn't even vote to begin the process, every point Kane Coulter advocated for was later adopted by the Power Five conferences. Um, so things like increased medical care and health care coverage, um, the move back... <laughs> from that one-year renewable grant to four- and five-year scholarships is huge um, because you don't have to be in fear of losing that scholarship if you don't do every little thing to please your coach. Um, and um, another point was re um, increasing the amount of compensation athletes get from what the grant and aid had been at the time to the full cost of attendance. Um, so it's really thanks to the athletes. And then as far as um, calling out racism on their campuses, calling out racism within intercollegiate athletics, we had Nigel Hayes, who was very outspoken, a basketball player at Wisconsin. We had Eric Stryker at the U University of Oklahoma um, doing similar work there. So um, yes, there are some schools that do better than others, but I think most importantly, we have to point to the athletes who forced schools' hands um, in paying better attention to these things. And now in this moment, I mean, what opportunity do the players have? Ha has their voice become strengthened and more, more determined to see that there's a way where playing in college football becomes more fair and equitable? Yeah, I, I think, again, although there has been an increase in athlete activism and an increase in athlete power thanks to the the groundwork laid by by those who came before, um, like Kane Coulter, Shabazz Napier, Nigel Hayes, and others. Um, I do think it's on us, those of us who, who work in higher education, to really do this work so that athletes shouldn't have to. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it can be both. And so you know, I wrote this piece because I feel a responsibility as an educator 
to call out what this system is. Um, I attended the University of North Carolina in the early 2000s, and my experience there absolutely informs my position and my work. And because, um, so I attended UNC at, at what I call a high water mark in the academic fraud scandal that took place there, unbeknownst to me, on purpose it was unbeknownst to me, because I was an athlete who, um, had I known about what was going on, would have gone rushing to administrators about it. And um, there's such a disparate experience in intercollegiate athletics um, based on whether you're in a revenue generating sport or if you're in the Olympic sports. And so I see myself as a beneficiary of collegiate amateurism. I got a full ride. I got a world-class educational experience and a world-class athletic experience. I turned pro in both school and sports. I ran professionally. I earned a PhD and I can point to black athletes who played football and basketball when I was at Carolina who were ch channeled into fake classes, ironically in African-American studies where they could have been learning about <laughs> systemic racism and didn't, they were denied. We were all promised this world-class education as the trade-off and they were denied it and I got to capitalize it on it. So that's why I'm so passionate about this um, topic and why I feel a responsibility now that I'm an educator to call this what it is and to think about how we can do better by our students who play sports. So last October, California passed the Fair Pay to Play Act, prompting other states to also propose similar legislation. And it's been eight months since that legislation has passed. What progress has been made up to this point? Well, um, there are approximately 25 states um, considering legislation similar to what was passed in California. Colorado has passed a similar law. Florida is the most recent state to pass its version of California's Fair Play to Play Act. Um, and <laughs> for those who have studied this long history of intercollegiate athletics, it's no surprise that the NCAA formed a working group that made these great, bold, supportive statements about, you know, the need for NCAA sports to modernize, that amateurism is able to ch change, and yes, athletes should be able to monetize their name, image, and likeness from third parties. But once that working group got to work, you know, and more time passes, um, there's been such a, a step back from those initial expressions of, yes, we do need to do this to the point where I fear it's, it's going to go back to exactly where we started. So the working group came up with, um, a number of what they call guardrails where yes, athletes can monetize, but they can't do it in this situation or that situation, um, related to, um, you know, if if the school has um, a sponsorship with, a, you know, a certain company, then the athlete can have a conflicting one to, um, you know, um, social media posts and on and on and on. And the more they talk through it, the more, oh, I think there's this realization it's going to be this huge headache. And then um, we have individual athletic directors from some of these schools like UNC and Duke 
saying they don't want to see any of the proposed name, image, and likeness changes happening. They don't agree with any of them. And so, you know, the cynic would say this was all choreographed. Um, I don't think that's actually the case. I do think there's differences of opinion across schools and across athletic departments. Um, but the cynical take is that, you know, you put in all this effort so that you can ultimately return to where it began. And so um, Bama Cunningham, the athletic director at the University of North Carolina, has written the Uniform Law Commission saying that states can't pass these different name, image, and likeness acts in their states because, um, you know, there needs to be a uniformity across. Marco Rubio has submitted a, a bill to the Senate that <laughs> looks, appears as if it's about name, image, and likeness, but um, a lot of critics of it see that it's an attempt to get an antitrust exemption so that schools will no longer have to deal with any challenges to the amateur model. Um, and, and, you know, this is, again, all happening in the midst of a global pandemic. And so my fear is that, of course, the pandemic takes priority. And if it does take a lot of work to, to um, adopt some, some form of name, image, and likeness rules, um, you know, that headache is going to, is going to be put on the back burner as schools focus on the pandemic and how to return to sport in a safe way if they can at all. So what do you believe is the solution to all of this? How do we come to a place where there's actual progress? Yeah, I think we need to untether college football from higher education and do it in a way that's responsible so that the schools can still enjoy the many benefits they have from having football in close, close proximity to campus and that the college town and community and alumni and, you know, everybody still kind of benefits from it, it being, you know, within arm's reach. So, you know, one solution I see is spinning it off. You privatize it. You have football players who are now employees who can unionize and have labor rights they're paid, but in that compensation package, they get lifetime scholarships to the school attached to that professional club. And you make it age group, so it's around the ages of colleges. And because it's a lifetime scholarship, we don't have to go through the sham of, you know, trying to act that playing professional football isn't a full-time job and exhausting <laughs> um, that, you know, students you know, if they choose the student route of this, could take classes in the off season, they could wait until their career is done. If this doesn't end up being their pathway to the NFL, they can go to school and maybe pursue a job in the sports industry or not. It's up to them. Um, and, you know, this way the athletes are finally getting what they deserve, both payment, labor rights, and, and then finally, um, the educational piece will actually be educational. So we're starting to see some teams, you know, already testing positive for the coronavirus. Uh, Morehouse announced that it is canceling all, you know, uh, sporting events for the fall. Um, players are demanding, you know, answers. They're demanding change. Is there a potential that just players ultimately say, hey, without us, there's there's no football, there's no sports? that this thing just shuts down altogether? Um, 
Yes, I think that there are, that those conversations are taking place on on multiple campuses right now. And and we've seen a boycott recently in college football at the University of Missouri and it was related to to racism not being addressed um on within the campus community. Um and the president of the Missouri system resigned once the football team got involved and th- threatened to boycott a game that would have guaranteed the school a million dollars. It was going to be played in Kansas City against BYU. Um, so we've, we've seen the, the boycott having results, being successful and getting results really quickly because of the money involved. And um, this, this is both about racism and athlete health which of course is also bound up in racism because of the the makeup of these teams. But, um, you know, if the schools don't do it, the athletes will. And again, because I'm an educator, I feel like we should be stepping in and, and doing the responsible thing and, and taking this on without having to be forced to take it on. But more power to the athletes who are calling out what's going on in their communities and also across campuses as well. Victoria Jackson, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. That was Victoria Jackson, clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University. We put a link to her Boston Globe op-ed in our show notes. That'll do it for this episode of The Huddle. The Huddle is a production of the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU. The producer for this episode was Kendall Jones. If you have a question or comment for us, send us a tweet. We are Global Sport MTRS. That's Global Sport MTRS. I'm Andrew Ramsamy. Until next time, be well.